Welcome to the Best Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Wooten. I've been an English language and literature teacher for 10 years. And in my experience, the best resource we have as teachers is each other. The Best Teacher Podcast interviews everyday teachers from around the globe doing amazing, innovative things in their classroom. In every episode, you'll meet incredible educators, hear their best stories, gain practical wisdom and useful resources you'll love, and strategies that can transform your students' learning experience. I hope you enjoy the show. I am so excited to invite you into my conversation with Dr. Colleen Kelly today. An accomplished professor, scientist, high school teacher, and entrepreneur, we discuss so much in this interview, including a technique called purposeful daydreaming, the importance of taking a moment to pause and reflect while we teach, and how something as simple as pancakes can transform a class into a hive of active learning. We'll also talk some about Colleen's amazing series of comic books called the MC Detective Agency. So get ready to take notes. Here's episode six of the Best Teacher Podcast with Dr. Colleen Kelly. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Really great to have you. Thanks, Grant. It's great to be here. Yeah, so um, we've met, I think we met a few months ago through LinkedIn, which happens yep. to be where I'm, I feel like I'm meeting everyone these days. <laughs> um, for any teachers that aren't on LinkedIn, get on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of great people there. And I think it's at its peak right now as far as usefulness. I'm not sure if it's going to stay that way, but now is the good time to jump in. I don't know if you'd agree. I would agree. I think the conversation we had about LinkedIn was spot on that it's been super helpful in networking and it I think it is peaking. Yeah. And and, and unfortunately I have a feeling it's going to go the way of most social media, which is um that usefulness will erode over time as more and more people try to take advantage of it. But for now, uh, any teachers that aren't on LinkedIn, get on there, find Colleen, find me, you'll be able to follow us there. But let's back up and introduce you, uh Colleen. I will let you introduce yourself um because I'd probably muck it up. Uh <laughs> and uh why don't you tell us a little bit about you? and your background as a teacher, and now as an associate professor, yes. um, and as an entrepreneur, just a little bit, okay. you know, all of that, just in a minute. All of that. <laughs> so yeah, my name is Colleen Kelly. Um, I teach at the University of Arizona, and specifically, I teach organic chemistry. So if that didn't send a chill up your spine, I'm, <laughs> it usually does for most people. Uh, my journey to, to teaching has been convoluted. Maybe some of you out there have that as well. I started out as a research chemist, realized that I wanted to continue my own research and took a job at um, in Arizona. One of the first things they do is they put us into a classroom of about 200 pre-meds and say go. So um, when you teach at the university level, you have zero training at all <laughs> and you get put into a classroom and they go. So um, I learned by fire over years. But what I really learned was that I love teaching. And what I really, really learned is that I wanted to uncover how people learn chemistry, why they think it's hard, and how I can make it accessible. So my journey over the past almost 30 years has been been that. Yeah, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more at the end about uh, the comic book series that you developed, and um, and how you developed that for for K twelve uh, schools and as a solution, but really for for anyone to to learn um, chemistry in a way that that is understandable. I know that one of the one of the things that you talked about in our previous conversation is that it's basically just number line math. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. people treat it like it's quadratic equations. Yeah. Um, and so you're exposing that, you know, this thing that feels so distant is actually much easier to understand um, than we make it. And I feel like that's that's something we see a lot in education and in a lot of fields, right? But especially in education because of the inherent lean towards pretentiousness that it can have. Um, where we overcomplicate things that are actually pretty simple. Would you say that, yeah. that you've seen that happen kind of in, in other areas, not just in uh, in the periodic table, you know, the, yes, where we're thinking and, just and, named ridiculous names and, and, yeah. you're, and you're like, well, but this is really just this connecting to that. Why can't we just say that? Yeah, the, I think with chemists in particular overcomplicate everything. The other thing is we do is we're inconsistent um, with things that students don't realize it's the same thing. Like mm. um, 
will name two different things, two of the things that are the same differently. Anyway, it gets very confusing. So my my goal is to clarify all that. Well, we never do that in teaching, um, like with learning tasks and learning activities and lesson objectives and lesson goals. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do the same. I think it happens across uh, across all fields where it's like, wait a second, can we all get on the same page here. I think we're actually not disagreeing right now. I think, I think we're all just using different terms. Um, you mentioned that you, you've taught at the high school level as well, and you did that for, for seven years, correct? Seven years, seven great years. Yeah. So um, when my son was reaching the age to go to middle school, there was a private school in town that um, was wonderful independent school that offered, he's an alternative learner, neurodivergent, and I was looking for something where he could flourish. <laughs> and it came with a price tag. And I went to talk with the administration there and they said, we're hiring a chemistry teacher and oh, it comes with free tuition. And I thought, well, there's the lottery. <laughs> and I said, yes, on the spot. Yes, for this great school for my son and the opportunity to teach high school, which I never thought in a million years I'd do. But you know, when life hands you these things and you say, yes, magic happens. I had a great time being in the high school environment and you learn so much more about the craft of teaching. You learn so much about how people learn. So everything that I wanted to know was in that nutshell as well. It astounds me still. I'm still just thinking about this statement you made at the beginning of the recording that they give zero training. Is that typical across <laughs> all of higher ed? They just hire professors and expect them to be able to teach? Yeah, yeah, it's, I think it's something that I didn't realize until I was in a, in, you know, in a high school system where everyone had, you know, teaching degrees, but me, and I thought, wow, this is like a thing, like, you know, you do go to school to learn how to teach, but, um, you know, and it may be different in different departments, but certainly in chemistry, you're hired to, to do research and yeah. conduct research and have a research group and and then you take your expertise into the classroom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, th there's a need <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, I yeah. didn't, that I didn't know existed. Wow. <laughs> um, that's got me thinking. But, you know, I know there's a lot of uh, teachers looking to supplement their current work um, or leaving the classroom. And maybe this is an untapped market for them, people that know how to teach. Um, going into universities and training professors on uh, on, yeah. how to, on how to teach because if they're not getting any training at all they've got to be drowning or if they're not drowning their students are yeah 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 I would say yeah and you know there is a field um, in science you know there's science education and people can get a PhD in chemical education for example sure and once I received tenure with my own research I pivoted to chemical education and really learned about the craft of teaching. But, you know, I was 10 years into to right. 10 years in front of thousands of students at that point, whether that was good or bad, I'm not sure. But, you know, um, so since then, I have taken on the craft of, of learning about teaching and all the tools and, and the theory. And so there there is that, but it was not offered to me initially when I started teaching. That explains a lot, honestly. <laughs> As far as the difference between most of our experience in elementary, middle, and high school, and then we go to college and it feels like we just got hit by a truck because it's, just, <laughs> it's so different. Um, and it's it's because our professors have never been trained how to teach. Um, maybe one of the factors, right? One of the factors. I, I think that's a, to the detriment of everyone, honestly. And I, I feel like we could have the the whole conversation about that now, but I'll, I will stop. And I'll, I'm going to ask you one thing about your background before we move into sure. the stories section. And and that is, what is the the biggest difference that you found? Um, the most, the thing that stuck out the most to you between teaching a class in a university setting and teaching a class in a, in a high school setting? I have found no difference at all. Wow. <laughs> um, students are students and yeah. chemistry is chemistry. So uh, I didn't really have to pivot very much. I, I remained true to what I feel is are my best practices and, and how I can best teach students chemistry. So um, I would say it's just the backstory is a little bit different. Um, you know, high school students don't have trouble with their roommates that kind of stuff. So, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure. I think it's my demeanor. I, I tend to be very maternal. So I, I hear mm -hmm. a lot of backstory things about 
roommates and whatever's going on in college. And it's a different backstory in high school. It could be parents. That's well, the parents only. could be classified as roommates, I think. Yes, it's, it's true. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's really interesting. I expected, I, you know, I expected maybe there to be more of a difference, but it's, I guess it's encouraging for me as a high school teacher now um, to know that uh, there isn't as big of a leap perhaps yeah. between, between those two, at least in, in some cases, right? And, and right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these high school students were very bright, but it was the first time they were learning chemistry. And, you know, a lot of freshmen at the University of Arizona are also very bright, but it's their first term time learning chemistry. So right. when you have a collection of first time learners, it doesn't really matter the age. Yeah, it's more about the the level. You know, there's probably an age, maybe it's 16, 17 where it begins not to matter as much, right? right? Yeah. Whereas if you were teaching it, did you ever teach at the middle school level or anything lower than, than kind of upper or secondary? Well, currently I'm teaching fourth grade uh, with okay. my new curriculum. So I'm 10 weeks into teaching fourth grade. So I have I'd imagine you, you see some pretty stark differences there. Yeah, they, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. like I turn around and uh, Emma's jumping off the chair. I'm like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> I need to learn how to do classroom management. For all of you out there who know how to do classroom management, kudos. But I also have a very high tolerance for all that. I'm like, all right, sure. well, it's fine. <laughs> well, I think I think that's part of classroom management is a, a huge part of it is your own demeanor, right? How you right. respond to what goes on in the classroom and keeping your cool in the midst of the chaos that can sometimes yeah. do will then rub off on the students, right? Um, right. And I think uh, being a parent, uh, both of us understand that when your emotional level goes up, um, it does nothing to help the situation, right? And so we've kind of learned that just from raising kids, and it's very much the same in, in the classroom, I'd say. So you've already got some classroom management. You don't even know it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move in now to uh, my favorite part of the podcast, which is uh, talking about your favorite stories from your career. So uh, if you have one or if you have two, some people even sneak in three uh, shorter ones, um, we can always cut the bad ones in post. So no worries. Uh, I'm joking. We don't, we haven't cut any yet. But if, uh, if you've got a story that you'd like to share with us today that you feel like is the one that just sticks, sticks with you, that keeps coming back, that you keep coming back to, maybe for good or bad reasons, um, we want to hear it. Okay, great. Yeah, um, I I have dozens, of course. And so this is a really, this is like asking what your favorite song is, right? Right. Uh, it depends on your mood on the day. But you, you have your collection. And I think one of my favorites was when I was teaching high school. One thing that I always did, um, because they were hungry, they're always hungry in high school. And, and this is an independent school, so there's some leeway. So mm -hmm. I had, uh, you know, I had a microwave, I had... Um, like hot plates and kitchen tools. And so this was not unusual, but they would walk in and, and they would say, Dr. Kelly, can we make pancakes? You know, it sounds like an odd question, but this was somewhat normal in my classroom. You know, they walk in, can we make pancakes? And I remember the one day, you know, your instinct is right. This is AP chemistry. We're not making pancakes. You know, that's your instinct, right? And so I thought about it and I took a pause and I think, think I like this story because of the pause. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, we can make pancakes because they knew I had this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I said, but I said, we need to measure how much carbon dioxide each pancake produces. Mm. While we're, while, and then we got to figure out ways to produce more carbon dioxide or less carbon dioxide, or what is the carbon footprint of making pancakes? And then their eyes were split up. We were actually talking about gas laws at the time. So we were talking about gases and, and yeah. carbon dioxide production as a byproduct. So all of a sudden then pancake making three weeks later is still a project that we're doing where we're trying to come up with a, a device that you can put over pancakes when you're making them that captures the CO2, measures the CO2. And then we're trying to adjust the ingredients in the pancake batter to increase carbon dioxide production, decrease carbon dioxide production. What happens if we substitute baking powder for baking soda? So it becomes this very elaborate scheme that turns into something that's a, what I call a teachable moment. And the reason right. I like this story so much is because of my pause and my yes. And that took, you mm. know, decades of teaching. Maybe as a young teacher, I would have said, no, this is AP chemistry. We're not making pancakes until we're right. done. 
but but how can we of course we can make pancakes but and and then it also becomes this uh, exploration where it's super fun and also things like this um, and this is not a word but I'll use it um, might be a word someday it's a non-googleable lab or non-googleable moment like so the kids can't get on their phone and say how do we measure carbon dioxide from pancakes it's not been done before Right. So all of a sudden we're into innovation, we're into discovery, mm -hmm. we're into imagination, mm -hmm. we're into creativity. Um, we're, you know, all the all the pillars of science we're using. And yeah. there's no we're we are also pioneering measuring carbon dioxide from pancakes. So um, and it's great. It's these are great, great moments. And so it was a moment that led into uh, many teaching epiphanies, also many connections with students that they still remember to this day, um, what they learned and, and how they, what we designed. And, and ultimately we were never all that successful because it turns out like it's not a lot of carbon dioxide that comes out of pancakes. So you need this very sophisticated instrumentation to measure the very tiny quantities of it. But, you know, we were trying different things. Do you put a balloon over it? Is it enough to blow up a balloon? Can we see it? All, all of these different things on a budget, on a shoestring. And just with, you know, jerry rigging things. So it was a lot of fun. And it was something from that moment on when the question came, Dr. Kelly, can we? I mm. always went to yes. Yeah. And, and, and saying yes, because you never know what's going to happen after that. Yes. I love that story. That's probably one of my favorites so far. It's so cool. I, I did. Oh, well, I, I got to ask the most important question, of course. Um, did you eat the pancakes? Sometimes, sometimes they weren't very good because we adjusted the ingredients. Right. So much. <laughs> that we at least tasted them, and that oh, yeah, no, those are not very good. Yeah, the, the zero carbon uh, pancakes are not going to fly off the shelves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, that's so cool, and I think you're right that that our default is to is to shut that down right our default is to say that's too out of the box that's that's you know you're just hungry you're just trying to be goofy and we've got to do real learning here right, right. and again it's that it's that lean towards pretentiousness that i talked about there at the right. beginning where we just like we dismiss anything that doesn't seem um lofty enough um right. to ascertain to our level of learning here and and that's not actually, you know, the, the irony is that's not what causes learning, right? Uh, right? Kids learn when they're having fun, when when the learning is a byproduct of of life, when it's when it's engaged, when it's integrated into doing something that they enjoy, not right. not when they in fact nothing will turn them off, them off faster than saying this and giving the impression that this is some lofty, you know, thing that, that is far removed from everyday life and enjoyment. So I, I love that. My next question would be, why is it, do you think, that our default is no? Do you think it's our fear. training? Do you think it's no, our No, it's attitude? fear. It's fear, fear yeah. of, of looking silly. I didn't know how to measure carbon dioxide from pancakes. And zero, yeah. like I said, it's non-Googleable. We are pioneers in this area. Um, I had no idea. And I think it's, you know, when you're secure in who you are and what you, you know, what you can learn with the students. But I think there's this fear of, you know, it not working. It's probably not going to work, um, yeah. but let's try. So I think a lot of um, teachable moments get pushed aside because you're not prepared for them. And that's mm -hmm. exactly when you should tackle them when you're not prepared so that you can learn with the students, so that you can model um, vulnerability, all the things that we want to model for our students, model with them when you don't, uh, when you authentically right. don't know, not when you're pretending not to know, that's different, when you genuinely don't know. And, and they would ask me, Dr. Kelly, what happens if we put buttermilk in the batter instead of water? I don't know, let's try it. Like, I, I really didn't know. And I can imagine you had quite the assortment of ingredients in your classroom. Yeah, fridge. it was a big old mess in a fun way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what am I going to do with all this buttermilk <laughs> um, and eggnog and, you know. <laughs> right. um, did you have a student suggest you put vodka in the patent cakes? Because I <laughs> no. no. Oh, okay. So maybe, in their head, they, maybe in their heads they wanted to ask me, but that, that I would, yeah. I know <laughs> I want to keep, keep my job. So right, exactly. <laughs> that's an easy no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. You didn't have any of me then in your class. I would have said it just to, just to see your reaction. That's the kind of kid I was. 
Um, wow, that is so cool. I could, I could think about that story forever. I feel like you are brushing up against a fundamental mindset shift that needs that needs to happen in general. Because one of the things that's that's happened, you know, as we're recording this, is that this new AI has been released right. to the public. That honestly is, I guess, been around for a little while, but it hasn't been publicly accessible in this way. And people just kind of, you know, it, it sounds weird. GPT-3 doesn't say, it sounds like freaking, it sounds like the name of a droid from Star Wars. And, it, you know, it's just like, it's not interacting with us. We're not seeing it. People are talking about how powerful it is, but it's kind of like people talking about cold fusion. It's like, okay, we'll see when it gets here. And now it's here, right? And I've experimented with it and I've, I've been freaked out. And I've been obsessively showing other teachers like this is not I, I like how they're advertising it as a chat bot. It's not a chat bot. It's right. the closest thing to a generalized intelligence that I've ever seen. And it can lie. It can track its previous responses and stick to its guns, even when it yeah, I mean, it can do so many things. But it can cite sources, it can conduct research, it can write essays, it, it can do all of these things. And the writing essays bit is, I think, the most important because so much of formal education has been built around the essay as right. the form of assessment. And overnight, it feels like that form of assessment has been made invalid. Right. I mean, there were already so many things working against it, to be honest. I mean, already people were getting tutors and they were getting other assistants. But but now, I mean, it takes seconds. Have you messed around with it at all, Colleen? I haven't, but I, yeah, I, I've heard the, these same stories. You you should, you should. I think everybody should. Um, I don't know how long they'll leave it open to the public, but I also don't think that they can put uh, the cat back in the bag. It's, right. it, if, if they've built up so much pent up demand now that hopefully that's their, I think that's their strategy. I don't think they can shut it. There's no way. If you shut it down, somebody's going to create something just like it um, within right. a matter of months because- if they, for example, if they have a public offering, they're going to be one of the most valuable companies in the world overnight. It's right. it's crazy what this thing can do. Yeah. And in seconds, I mean, I, I, I can say anything and it will write me a short response. I've already used it, already used it to generate passages um, to help my students practice identifying the main idea. Wow. Um, and it took me, it, it took me seconds five seconds i wrote a prompt there they were and i put them into my i put them into my assessment because they were great they were good <laughs> um, you know students are going to be able to generate entire essays uh, any kind of you know typed response uh, they'll be able to generate as quick or if not quicker and we can't train around this we can't possibly right. train teachers to to recognize it or even ai to recognize it because it's a losing game the way that right. machine learning works, it's just going to keep getting smart. It's right now, the scariest thing is that it's six days old <laughs> and this wow. is how smart it is, you know, and it's only going to get crazier. So all of that to kind of circle back around and say that what education needs to be focused on now is what it has always needed to be focused on, which is not necessarily the individual skills and knowledge that go into education, but the mindset the resilience, the adaptability, the critical thinking that make a person who can adapt to a changing world quickly. You modeled that perfectly when you had that pancake moment, right? Yeah. Um, you you had been trained through you know your your training as a scientist and and everything else. Everything you know it's a little bit obvious, obviously, but people don't think about this. Everything that has led you to that moment, right? Formed you into the person that could make that pause, could say that, yes. That's the kind of formation that we need to be dedicated to because we cannot, more than ever, we cannot predict the kind of jobs that our students are going to have, the kind of economy, the kind of world they're going to grow up in. And so this outdated model where we have a particular set of skills that if you just gain this knowledge and this basic skill set, you'll be fine. It's just not true anymore. And we don't even have a way of operating that system anymore. This, this new thing has completely pulled the rug out from under yeah. traditional education. And of course, there's going to be those that resist it and try to hold on to the old model as much as they can. But it's already dead, in my view. And yeah. I think what you've modeled in this story is exactly the sort of thing that we need to be doing as teachers more and more. Um, so thank you for, for sharing oh. that. I think it was perfect. <laughs> Good. Yeah. You're welcome. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant, but but, but no, it's, no, it's, no. It's, it's scary. So timely. It's so yeah. Timely. I I think you know it, it is incumbent upon 
educators to come up with these pioneering moments that are on the spot because that's the only way that we can get them to think we you know if left to go home they're going now they're going to have ai they're you know there's so many things that um i i liken it to you know we used to have to walk everywhere and now there's a car right and so our health declines well i think you know our, our brain is also going to go through that same decline right. if, if we don't exercise it so now instead of you know like today uh we might intentionally exercise we go for a run it's not because we have to run I don't have to run to get to the next town I can drive so I run because I know it's good for me I think we're going to have to start teaching our students that they have to do things for their brain so that it's good for their brain because right. they don't have to use them like they used to you know teachers have been saying this for years um the grades don't matter the grades don't matter what matters is 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 the practice is the skills yes. that you gain It's the actual knowledge. It's how it's forming you into a person. But now more than ever, the yes. grades actually don't matter. <laughs> well, they're irrelevant now. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could get a 4.0 GPA and go to Harvard. And if you can't demonstrate the soft skills that you need to, to be a good team member and you don't have a portfolio of proven work, good luck getting a job. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's already happened and 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 people, we're just so slow to catch up. So we'll, we'll move into the next parts because okay. yeah, 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 I, can, yeah. I don't want to waste your time, but I'm just having. So no, much that's fun. OK. Yeah. Um, I know we're like minded and I think I think you could run a whole PD on that sort of thinking. Maybe we could collaborate on something like that. That would be great. But, I would love to. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that sometime. The next part of the podcast is uh, is a tip. So this is just. Uh, the best tip you can think of, if you had to give teachers one tip, and I feel like we've just talked about a huge one, but maybe right. another one, um, one tip about the way they approach their practice, uh, or even the way they approach their life. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be directly connected to teaching, but something that you would recommend to teachers in general, um, that will help them be the best educators they can be. I would say bring yourself as a human into the classroom and, you know, I usually start classes with a story. I, I, I do a lot of storytelling and sometimes it's personal stories and, and they're not all that personal, but they might relate to chemistry. I might have made a terrible dinner the night before. Um, cooking and chemistry seem to go together as the yeah. theme with the pancakes and um, other things. Um, or, you know, something that shows that you're a real person and if you come into the classroom or I could say, you know, you guys I really I read this really great book last night or I finished a really great book. Have you guys read it? And, you know, that kind of thing. And then or or this may appall the audience, but sometimes I'll just come in and be like, did, did anyone watch The Bachelor last night? Like, what was that all about? They're like, Dr. Kelly, you watched The Bachelor? I'm like, yeah, it's like my guilty pleasure. And then you have five seconds of that. And watch the learning explode because no yeah. longer are you someone who they can't relate to all of a sudden they realize that I was you know watching the bachelor they were watching the bachelor and then I'm someone they want to listen to because I'm human it's a benign tip but open yourself up just a little bit as much as you're comfortable and I found over the years talking about my family or talking about a hobby I have and again you're not talking about yourself to say how great I am you're just talking about everyday life. Um, another thing you can do at the start of class, oftentimes at the university, I've got two or 300 students in a big lecture hall. So I walk up and down the steps and just say, oh man, it's freezing out. Do you, are you cold or where are you from? Or, you know, that kind of thing where you make eye contact with the student before you start. So the first five minutes of every class I set aside for chit chat. I love mm. chit chat and chit chat's really important because it, it brings them all down. Um, I think if we did an F fMRI scan of their brains, you would see a huge change from mm. entering the class, carrying a lot of baggage with you, some chit chat, some levity, and then we can start ease into a lesson. So I, I would say that that's a good tip for any teacher. I, yeah, I love that. So th there's a theme rising out of all of the interviews that I'm doing, and I feel like human connection is is uh, always at the center. And I, I, I'm okay with that repetitiveness because it ne it needs to be it's said. It's it is at the core of teaching, and it's something that that educators understand. That I have to say, I feel like most publishers and ed tech creators and all of these yeah. others that are outside, they don't get it at all. They think we can be 
replaced by you know this or that and and, and they don't understand i like the way that uh steven guerrero put it in in i think it was episode two um where he talked about the emotional work yeah that we do um we do a lot of emotional work it's emotionally taxing to be a teacher because of this very thing and it's not necessarily that we don't enjoy it but it is work to yeah. um to try and empathize and connect with you know x number of students i mean imagine why why are we so happy when like a dinner party or something like that gets canceled it's because it's not because we wouldn't have a good time it's because it's work to interact with people and, and have a good time with them it's it's something that you need a break from after doing it for a bit so imagine doing that five hours a day but with 25 people at a time who you know how you interact with them um, is going to possibly change the trajectory of their lives. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's not it's not a simple thing, and um, and that's not even you know so much of what we do has nothing to do with the content that we're teaching. So yes. much of what we do is yeah. is you know is universal to the experience of a teacher, and it and it's and it's human formation, you know, right. it, it, and it's emotional and it's spiritual and it's mental i mean it's 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 all of those things and and i i like that your tip kind of touches touches on that all right for the sake of time uh so what is a tool that you use whether it's physical or digital doesn't matter um that you go i would never teach again without this tool oh i'm so old school grant i mean i i go laugh about my answer um it, it's a dinosaur um but some some writing tool like a whiteboard, I used to use the overhead projector, but not like with prefab stuff just to write on it. Um, yeah. I find that it's really important, I think in science and math, to write along with your students. Mm. So a, a tool where you're physically writing the same time they are helps you pace them, helps pace. So if I'm writing um, a chemical equation that I want them to balance, I, I take the time to write it instead of having it on an app to show them. That's not fair. If I want them to, I think the neural pathways that are developed from handwriting are, are cannot be, um, I guess, emphasized enough. Uh, drawing and writing are critical to learning. If I want to, to say that, I have to model that. So I take the time to draw, I take the time to write. I don't have any prefab notes. I don't have anything digital i might have notes on the side but i i recreate them on a whiteboard or an overhead projector or an elmo or whatever drawing tool that i have but um writing with your students depending on the content you're teaching them but i know for science and math it's particularly applicable to take the time to do that they appreciate that and i think while you're doing that too to be quiet so there's some quiet time. So you're not talking through your writing. You're writing, they're writing, they're mirroring it. And then everyone can sit down and have an image in front of them, an image on the whiteboard. And then you can have a discussion about what these symbols mean and how to interpret them and explain that. Um, but I will never, if I ever had to teach, um, in fact, actually in the fourth grade classroom I'm teaching in now, for another project I'm working on, I brought in a whiteboard. I bought one off of Amazon and brought it in because they only had a smart board. I'm like, I, I can't teach protons, neutrons, and electrons on a smart board. Like mm. we have to draw, like there's a story to be told. There's arrows to be shown. There's different colors, there's circles, there's smiley faces to put beside things. There's all those impromptu moments that if I have something that's in an app, Sorry, anyone in ed tech out there, but uh, I'm not your girl. Like, <laughs> I have to do it this way. Well, that's it's really interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest something that um, that maybe you haven't heard of, and it, it's it's a it's a merger of these kind of two worlds. Have you okay. ever heard of of Rocket Book Beacons? No. Okay, so I've got I'm a big whiteboard guy myself. Um, but these these beacons, they're just little orange things that stick to whiteboard material, and you can put them on the corners of the whiteboard, and mm -hmm. you hold up using the app on your phone. You hold it up, and it it creates a perfect like PDF scan. Like it's it's it, it does a filter thing where it looks really really good, and it gets rid of all the marks and the smudges and all that, and it just kind of pops out. And I like to take those scans and share them with my students after the class oh. so we might you know, so then they have that same thing and they can directly make a direct connection between the exact notes that they wrote with you in class 
um, and they can go back and review them and see if they missed anything. Um, I love it, it also has a feature that I haven't used where it live updates if you want to stream it to someone. So it'll actually send, it'll take a picture, you know, every five seconds or something and actually send via online uh, the, the live picture, um, high quality scan of the whiteboard. And I think they're like $7 or something like that. I guess. This really, is really awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Again, the writing and the drawing is for pacing, for also communicating. I mean, in science, we communicate still. Scientists communicate. If you go to a lab, I just visited a lab. I was doing a tour all over their hoods. They've got those sashes and they still have the markers with the mo molecules drawn and all the mm. ideas on there. And so we draw all the time. And so our craft yeah. is drawing. So I have to make students draw in my class. We, yeah. we cannot substitute that for anything else. But to capture well, it afterwards would be awesome. It's the difference between looking at a mental model right. and recreating it. Right? There's just no, there's no comparison there. Um, have you talked your students through why this is so important to you when, when you mm -hmm. do it? Right. Yeah. A lot of them uh, immediately sit down and get their laptops out and I'm like, uh-uh, put it away, get yeah. some paper, pencil, here we go. And, and they catch on it. And, 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 you know, we assess them in that form. So they're assessed on paper. Yeah, I, I've, um, after teaching for a year online, I went back to, I mean, it was, it was nuts. I, I hated it so much, like every other teacher that I've talked yeah. to, um, completely online, completely digital teaching seventh graders. Oh, it was insane. And I, this year went full the other way because I believe in so much of the same things that you do when it comes to, to paper. And I mean, there's, there's science to back it up, of course. And I went binders. I went old school, I bought binders for okay. each of my students. And I have them sorting all of their work. And there's not it, like, if I can do it on paper, I do it on paper. And there was one day when I thought, oh, this might be easier to do on a Google Doc, right? And so I did it on a Google Doc and it was chaos. It was, it was insane. Yeah. Like they, they, they couldn't, the difference between the amount of focus they had when they were working on paper versus a Google Doc, I think what ended up happening is I had two sections of the same grade. So I teach the same lesson more or less. Uh, twice in the day and the first lesson I used the Google Doc and then I immediately went and printed it <laughs> for the same like I didn't even do it the same day in the second lesson that's how how much I was like oh that went off the rails you know <laughs> so any teacher that's having a hard time getting their students to to focus or retain information I think you need to seriously consider making the switch back to paper and whiteboards as much as you possibly can um, even if it seems archaic uh, because we should do what's best for our students, not what seems, not what seems right. to be the most right. convenient or most flashy, right? Um, so yeah, I, I love that, and I don't think it's outdated. I think you know it's all about how you use the tool, not so much about the tool itself. When it comes to something as generally applicable as a whiteboard, and the fact that you went in and explained why and how you do it, I think is is the key factor there. Have you ever considered using a, a, a document camera? I've seen those used as well, where it's it's kind of like an overhead projector. Yeah, yeah, right? we call that the Elmo, yeah. The Elmo, okay. Yeah, those are great, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love using those. Do you find that you that there's different strengths to, to using that versus a whiteboard or the other way around? I, I prefer the Elmo because you're forward facing the students. And okay. um, the whiteboard is, the, the drawback of the whiteboard is your, your back is to the students and that's okay. just not ideal ever. So the, the dot camera approach, you can forward face the students. And, and it's nice for me to see, are they keeping up with me? Am I writing too fast? Where, where are they right now? So eyes on students at all times to read body language is really important. That makes sense. I, I wonder, um, wonder if instead we could get one of those clear whiteboards and then learn to write backwards. <laughs> be great great uh, brain building skill <laughs> yeah if you could if you could pull that off let us know um be the alternative yeah I, i'm gonna look into that now um i'm learning just as much as our audience here so thank you so much for for sharing one more thing to share with us sure. i'm excited about it is a strategy that you've employed when teaching a direct strategy and and what i'm really searching for is is kind of like an activity and it can be a generalized activity that can be, you know, you can use it with multiple types of things, or it can be very specific to a specific area of knowledge or skill that you teach. And you, but, but what's important to me is that it's a strategy that you just keep coming back to that. You cannot, um, 
that you look for excuses to do it again because it gets it so reliable as far as student engagement and, and learning outcomes. Yeah, I'm super excited about this strategy. I only um, found out about it maybe eight, 18 months ago. So it's relatively new for me and it's life-changing and um, it's called purposeful daydreaming. And I'll okay. talk more about this purposeful daydreaming in the classroom and how I've seen phenomenal results. I'll, I'll, I'll just lead with the results first. It's um, it's led to two times creativity and two time um, domain specific comprehension so that they're understanding twice as much and being twice as creative with this insertion of purposeful daydreaming through friends of a friend's LinkedIn, everybody. <laughs> uh, I met a, a woman who teaches fourth grade in San Diego who started a, this startup called the Cloud Club Collective. We Zoomed and Grant, like you and I, Paula and I immediately hit it off and she told me. As, me, as soon as she told me about purposeful daydreaming and what it was, I said, I need to do that with my students. So there's this phenomenon that researchers at Georgetown uncovered about 2020, the paper came out. So this is relatively new research. And like we have math anxiety, there's creativity anxiety. We all know this, but it's never been measured. It's never been dubbed a thing, I guess, for lack of a better word. So creativity anxiety is what we feel when we have the blank screen in front of us, blank piece of paper, the blank canvas. Yeah. Um, and the ability to create when you don't know what to do. And our students are getting debilitated more and more by, by uh, blank screens because of devices and ability to get started without starting from their imagination. So what creativity or what purposeful daydreaming is, it's an intervention for creativity anxiety. Mm. So the way that I use it in my classroom, it's, it's so simple. It's free. I feel like it's telling people to breathe, which kind of it is. Um, but I want to differentiate it from mindfulness and meditation practices. It's sim similar, but purposeful daydreaming, and uh, this is something that I've come up with, and I've since partnered with Paula and her cloud club in collecting data for her, um, and we're presenting at South by Southwest last year on this, and again this year on it, um, but what I say to my students is like, imagine that there is a problem to solve right? A puzzle. I like causing it, calling it a puzzle now. So imagine there's a puzzle. Imagine your brain wraps gently around the puzzle and gives it a nice little hug. So we call it a huggable puzzle and a solution slowly oozes out. So mm -hmm. purposeful daydreaming is when you hold the space of the puzzle in your brain and relax into it. So the way that it works in my classroom or how it could work in a, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example outside of chemistry. I'll give an example in a, a writing classroom. If you would have a writing prompt, so you put a writing prompt up on, on a screen somewhere and the students would look at the writing prompt. So you have them absorb the writing prompt without writing, without anything. And then you take the writing prompt down, turn off the lights a little bit if you can, maybe play some soft music and then allow them to give the writing prompt a hug with their brain. And so my I play some soft music. There's some rain coming down. There's like piano rain. Um, I have video of this. And this is in an auditorium with 200 students, right? 220 year olds. So if I can do it with 220 year olds, you guys can do it <laughs> with 25. And, and you feel the room for what, allowing them to relax. They'll be tapping their foot, tapping their pencils. When is this purposeful daydreaming going to be over? And, and you're like, I'm not going to stop until I feel that you're actually daydreaming into the prompt mm -hmm. where you're not sleeping. You're not thinking of something else, but you're relaxed. And then you bring them out of that and then they write. But mm. what I think we can transform in education is when you hand out an exam, hand it out, let them look at it, turn it over, let them daydreaming for about five minutes on the actual exam. Because if you've ever gotten an exam and we've all been through this, where you're flipping through it madly and going, I know nothing on here. This isn't anything I studied for, right? You're done. If you look at it and feel that and then put it down and daydream for about five minutes, you'll realize that you did kind of study for that. And you might know how to do this one and you can change your mindset into going into it. It sounds crazy, but when I do this, I, I did a semester long study with my students where I used it and didn't use it. When I used it, they their level of comprehension definitely doubled. So I would use it one week. Uh, well, I, I would not use it and then use it the next week so that I didn't teach all that much, but what they understood escalated. Mm. Um, so it's free, it's easy, and that's the best kind of 
strategy to put into a classroom. And the, the kids love it. At the end of the semester, to complete the data set, I had to take it away because I had to see what happened when they didn't daydream. And, and you know, I had authorization to do this study. They were mad. They're like, well, mm. we, where's our daydream time? I'm like, well, you guys don't get it this time. because And what happened then, they plummeted. Right. So in a longitudinal study with this, what I found is that these students who develop this practice continue to use it in their other classes, whether it's prompted or not. So if they do receive a quiz or exam or writing prompt, they're now trained to close their eyes and give a purposeful pause and to ease into it, knowing the power of that. An argument against it is, well, where do you find the time to do this? There's so much to cover. When I show work where there's things that students are coming up with that I haven't even taught yet, purposeful daydreaming gets me ahead. So I have you know, freshmen doing 400 level work, not even knowing they're doing 400 level work because they've allowed themselves the space, creativity and pause to mm. jump ahead like that. So that's I, enough of a rant, but I, I just love this purposeful daydreaming. This is really, really interesting because I've been reading a lot about innovative thinking and, and recently learned about lateral thinking, uh, where you you attempt to daydream in a very specific way. You take a problem right. and you imagine it as much, much larger or much, much smaller scale, and that helps you understand it better. For example, I think it was on Dear uh, Hank and John, uh, which I don't know if you listen to that podcast at all, but it's a great one. And uh, and it's Hank and John Green, the guys that started. Crash oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. They, they have all kinds of crazy conversations. But one of the things that John recently talked about on that podcast was lateral thinking. And they use lateral thinking to try to figure out whether cutting a piece of paper um, leaves residue. Is it actually splitting the, you know, the atomic bonds between the papers and that, and it's a clean cut when you use scissors, or is there going to be some residue or something like that? And, um, and so they imagined it on a, on the scale of, you know, as big as a state, like a piece right. of paper as big as a, as a state. And then you cut it with a, with a giant pair of scissors and you realize, well, of course there would be, there would be residue. Um, and, and so it helped them understand that, that on the smaller scale, you just can't see it. And that seems to me to be a, 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 a form of um, purposeful daydreaming. Perhaps that could even be one of the prompts that, that you give to students. But it's, it's not necessarily a visual cue, right, or a visual prompt saying, imagine this. It's simply, you know, it could be something as simple as write a paragraph that explains um, the main theme of Emily Dickinson's right. hope, you know, uh, right. hope is the thing with feathers. And and then, you know, that doesn't seem like a very visual cue at all, but they can close their eyes and do this purposeful daydreaming, which I imagine is much just like focus, it's just focusing on the problem. It's allowing their mind to be, to be focused on just that one thing for even right. just a moment, instead of the million things that they're so often, um, and, and I know you have felt it, uh, as much as I have, and, and all of us in this age have, our attention so fractured by the many different screens demanding our attention throughout the day, and the notifications and the tasks and the, you know, the fact that there's always something that you can do to occupy your mind. This is really pertinent and timely, just like everything else you've, you've shared today. Yeah, um, because... and I think I'll, I'll add to that, because I, I think when you were talking about our distractions, what I've realized is that we no longer have a pause between guests and Google. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not even a nanosecond between, actually, we don't even guess anymore, right? So we've lost that notion where there's something that you wondered, I wonder X. So then you keep that wonderment in you. You might start guessing and then you'd find yourself at the library maybe a couple hours later, a couple of days later, but you're sitting with that wonderment. Now we don't sit with that wonderment at all. I wonder what bread cost in 1929. Instead of wondering about that and maybe it costs this much now and back calculating it, you just Google it. So guess to Google has become a nanosecond and we no longer have that pause. And I'd like to, I think purposeful daydreaming gives us that ability to stop that a minute. And when we're talking about strengthening our brains and keeping wonderment alive for learning, that pause needs to be in there. Yeah, there's so much that 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 is being said and needs to be said about this particular topic. But this practice is obviously a way 
for us to easily, like you said, no cost, integrate it into our classrooms. And I know you said one of the biggest resistors is where do you find the time? We've got so much to cover, but I hate the word cover because we're not covering material. We're teaching students, yeah. you know, and, and it doesn't matter if you've covered it all, if they don't remember it, if they don't learn it, if they don't integrate it into their lives. Um, so for me, I'm fine if I've only covered half the curriculum, but my students can remember 85 to 92% of right. all that we've learned, as opposed to covering the entire curriculum and they remember 30% of, of it, you know? So what, what is it that we're actually trying to do here? And I think that's more of an indictment of the amount of standardization, social pressure, policy pressure that we have than it is. Um, than it is actually students' abilities or teachers' abilities in the classroom. You know, they they right. they just keep piling on the things they expect us to cover in an amount of time, even though they themselves can attest to the fact that they've forgotten most of what they learned in school. <laughs> it's like maybe that shouldn't be the norm. And it feels like it's connected to spaced retrieval in some ways, retrieval practice. It feels like, you know, that's just that intentional firing of neural pathways, right? It's really what right. it is. You're focused attention on building um you know the, the connections that need to be built in order for information to be retained and integrated so thank you for that 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 was that's so great and you said it was the cloud club collective and and you yes. can find more information about this practice and maybe some of the research you've done there yes uh it's a uh, mycloudclub.org I, I think or mycloudclub.com okay. I'll, I'll let you know um yeah we'll put all the links to everything we've talked about today in, yeah. in show notes for for our listeners including this well i want to give you uh, a, a couple of minutes here before we close to talk a little bit about about your project um your main project that you've been oh yeah yeah the yeah that we talked about here at the beginning the reason we we connected in the first place which is kids chemical solutions and the name of the series that you've developed the the comic book series is is what again what is the name of the mc detective agency mc detective agency all right yeah mc um, for marie curie okay all right yeah 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 perfect I just learned that she was buried in a lead coffin, and I thought that was really, really interesting because they thought that her body might be radioactive. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> no um, doubt it's radioactive. So yeah. Marie Curie, if you don't know who she is, our our education system has failed you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about, about your project. Sure. So um, I created the MC Detective Agency series of comic books. They're in the works right now. The first two are being sold um, three and four are coming out any day now, and it'll be a series of 10, but they scaffold the learning objectives found in a 100-level college chemistry course. Each comic book in, is a learning, a, a suite of a unit, if you will, that encompasses related learning objectives, but each comic book is really more fun than that. It's a mystery, and there's these quirky, fun characters that go along this mystery, and they have to use chemistry to solve this mystery. That's why I'm teaching the fourth graders with them, because if I'm going to make something, I want to test it. I'm a scientist. So I uh, will go through the scientific method and revision and iteration. It's super fun to see these fourth graders. They love the story. They're learning the chemistry and they're getting my jokes, which Grant is amazing. So uh, MC is um, this mysterious person and she's meant to be mysterious. So it's called MC Detective Agency on, on purpose. The two main characters are twins, Poppy and Ray, they're twins. And they ask their granny who MC is and their granny knows, um, but their granny pretends not to know. And she says, oh, um, mm, um, well, isn't that that rapper, you know, the one that sings about mom's spaghetti? And all the, the fourth graders were laughing out loud and they're like, oh, Granny thinks MC is Eminem. And yeah. I'm like, how do you guys know Eminem? I'm like, I thought that was a little parent inside joke. And they're like, he was on the Super Bowl last year, Dr. Kelly. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So they they love my little like quirky jokes that are in there. And they just think that's great that Granny Eve mixed up MC with Eminem. And but the main purpose of this series is to make chemistry accessible to anyone ages eight. Eight and up. And the so they go through the series, and then there are a series of, of tasks that have been designed for the students to help yes. solve this mystery right. along the way. 
right? And those tasks are what scaffold the learning. It's not, they're not just sitting there passively, uh, you know, going through the stories and, and reading the material, but they're actually solving problems uh, along the way. And how long would, would you say it takes a student um, in a classroom setting to, to work through, you know, the first book, for example? Yeah, and this is what I've learned. So the first book, they were reading about 10 pages in 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so on average, that was about 10 pages on 40 minutes. Um, that's with a reading guide. So um, every two pages has a reading guide with prompts to think about puzzles to work. So yeah. I'm slowing the reading down a little bit because, again, I like the pause. I'm big on that. You can tell. And the second comic book, we're going into the structure of the atom and they're learning about quantum mechanics, the structure of the atom. They're talking about, you know, there's Einstein and Heisenberg and Schrodinger. So they're reading now about six pages in 40 minutes is slowing down a little bit because it's denser material. So the first comic book took, it's, um, we had Thanksgiving break in there, but I would give yourself two weeks in the classroom to finish one book. So I'd say, so the series meant, you know, it's 20 weeks of curriculum with 10 comic books. Yeah. Um, it's done it methodically. Next week, we're going to start the week um, playing bingo. We have atomic bingo to play and you have to have the right number of protons, neutrons and electrons and get the atomic mass right. And you can put a thing down, a marker down. There's reading, there's activity. It's a robust curriculum. I mean, I have to say they do love it. They're I, I have so dozens of images of pictures of them where their um, knees are on their chair and their chest is literally on their desk and their eyeballs mm -hmm. are like and their nose are touching the comic book in that body position um the school couldn't afford a comic book per child so they're sharing them and so mm -hmm. they love like having their faces planted all over the comic book and they love sharing the characters and reading aloud to each other so the classroom is a buzz of different character voices and them getting into it and then going to the reading guides and saying, I don't know, what are you going to put for this? It's full of discussion. So it's a very lively fourth grade classroom in the best way possible. Yeah, I, I'm so excited about what you've developed, uh, Colleen. I think everybody should should check it out. Really everyone, if you have any connection to schools at all, if you're a parent, if you uh, are a teacher, if you are a uh, 50-year-old uh, single male working in a financial office who has never learned chemistry. And for some reason, you're listening to my podcast. This is a great, uh, this is a great resource for, for, I think, anyone to learn. And it hits on so many points. But I think that the one that I've been learning more and more about, because I'm, I'm starting to get into more of a curriculum design role, even at my school, is that we need to be introducing our curriculum points and our, our learning objectives of uh, building them around narratives, building them around yeah. story, because that's what our brains are most wired for is, is to understand stories. Like my students um, might not be able to, to tell you who Marie Curie is yet, but they could break down the complicated plot lines of the MCU um, in a way that would make your head spin. And they didn't do any studying. <laughs> They just yeah. they just got exposed to the stories over and over again. And Hollywood has done a really good job of figuring out what kind of stories stick. And we can learn from that. Yes. We can learn from literature. We can learn from the great stories of the past. And I'm, I'm sure that you have done that in the narrative that you've created in this comic book. And so I love that it's narrative. I love that you um, have taken something that we thought was lofty and brought it down to the level where it should be, making it accessible to to fourth graders and up. I, I've I've seen it myself, and in fact, you offered to send me a copy, and I forgot to send you my address, and now I'm like, oh gosh, I've got to do that right now. <laughs> uh, do check it out. It's Kids Chemical Solutions is the website, right? Yeah, KidsChemicalSolutions.com. KidsChemicalSolutions.com. You'll find the MC Detective series. They're already on sale. The first two books. And the next two are coming out soon, correct? Yes. Yeah. Any day right. now. And Colleen, where can people find you and connect with you if they want to talk to you about anything we've talked about today? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn, like Grant said, um, under Colleen Kelly. Um, I'm on Twitter at kids underscore chem. And my email address is hilarious, but it's chemistrycolleen at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have all of that information in the show notes, um, as well as links to everything that, that we've talked about. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Colleen. It was a blast. It always is a blast talking to you. Um, I have no idea 
how in the world we would cut any part of this conversation out. But I'll leave that to my audio engineer if he feels like it's too long. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't I always like I always give him a hard time. I'm like, no, it was all so valuable. We've just got to leave it all in. And people could just take it in bits because I don't feel like there's anything we talked about today that isn't going to be highly valuable for for anyone involved, even ten, tangentially with education, let alone let alone teachers in the classroom now. So thank you so much. And we will be in touch for sure. OK, great. Thanks, Grant. Thank you so much. Hey there, thanks for sticking around till the end. You'll find links to all the resources mentioned in today's show in the show notes, including contact info for our guests. If you or someone you know is a teacher and would like to be a guest on our show, or if you have any comments or suggestions for us, we love that. You can send us a message at bestteacherpod at gmail.com. That's bestteacherpod at gmail.com. If you like today's show, make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you are listening to this and recommend the show to any other teachers in your life. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of The Best teacher podcast because teachers are the best.